On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. It took Los Angeles police detectives six years to track down Robin Q. Cho, a married father of two and insurance salesman with no criminal record of violence. As it turned out, they didn't have to go far. He lived three floors below the victims in the same Miracle Mile apartment complex. Finally, the LAPD caught a break. Police got a hold of Robin Cho's DNA, ran it through the system, and surprising everyone, there was a match. Investigators retested genetic material on a latex glove found at the scene. And the first question the cops wanted to know was, who? Who is Robin Cho? I'm Sharon Choi. And I'm Ben Adair. You're listening to Strangeland, season one, The Koreatown Murders. This is episode two. Who is Robin Cho? So, Sharon, this is a huge deal, this new break in the case. I'm sure the cops want to know. Everyone wanted to know. Who is this guy? So there's not a lot you can find out about Robin Cho. Online, offline, anywhere. And one good reason for that has to do with Korean names. There just aren't that many last names in Korea. For example, the surname Kim is about 21% of the population. The last name Cho, and Robin Cho spells it C-H-O, can actually be one of seven different names. Together, they make up almost 3% of all Koreans. I know a lot of Cho's. So in order to find out anything about Robin Cho, we had to dig. Okay, well, luckily, digging is something that we're very good at. What did you find out, Sharon? Robin Cho was born in a small town in South Korea in 1957. He was the second youngest in his family, of nine siblings. His mom didn't work, and his father was a businessman. He owned a salt farm in the 50s and 60s. A salt farm? I mean, that's basically just evaporating ocean water to make salt, right? It's not exactly a big, lucrative business. Here's how Robin Cho describes his childhood. Quote, Children used to chase rabbits in the winter snowy mountains. I used to pick cherries from my backyard. Summer, I used to eat fresh homegrown melons. In autumn, I picked chestnuts from the mountain with other children. Wait, why aren't we hearing Robin Cho's voice here? Well, Cho declined to be interviewed for this podcast for reasons that will become very clear very shortly. But he did agree to answer our questions in writing. So I'll be quoting from our correspondence. One note, we've edited these answers very lightly, just for clarity. So the Cho family immigrated to the United States in 1974. Robin Cho was in the 10th grade. It was during the first part of a huge 30-year wave of immigration to the United States. 
Today, when you think of South Korea, you probably think of the skyscrapers in Seoul and companies like Samsung and LG. But this is all very, very recent. Up until basically the 90s, South Korea was totally different. You know, the poverty in South Korea was shocking. This is Professor Edward Park. He's the chair of the Department of Asian and Asian American Studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. And while there were plenty of signs of economic development, South Korean economy uh, was still based on very, very low-wage work. Uh, the country was basically under martial law, and it was ruled with an ironclad fist by a, a military dictatorship. And so, given that situation, I think many, many South Koreans felt the pressure to emigrate. And coming to the United States was the great big hope and aspiration for a huge percentage of Koreans. So the Cho's immigrated in 1974. How did they adjust to life in America? It's hard to know. He actually says it wasn't too difficult. Understanding and speaking English was hard, but just for the first few months of living here. He did say that Los Angeles was not what he expected. For example, when his plane started descending towards LAX, Cho remembered looking out over Los Angeles and thinking that the city was so big. Bright lights laid out on a north-south-east-west grid. It's very different than anywhere in Korea. He says it reminded him of a giant chessboard, which is funny because Professor Park said something very similar. In 1975, I immigrated to the United States at the age of 10. And I also remember flying into L.A. Basin and looking at the grid. It made me think of the Asian board game Go, coming from the unplanned cacophony of Seoul cityscape. It was amazing to see such a planned and orderly city. I remember landing in LAX and my aunt picking us up and driving out of LAX and seeing all the palm trees. And I really thought that uh, we were in this kind of tropical paradise, right? In 1975, there really was no Koreatown as we sort of imagine it today. I remember there were basically a handful of Korean businesses. I remember going to the most important of those businesses, which was the Olympic Market on Olympic Boulevard, and um, seeing my first uh, Korean immigrants there. And if you blinked driving on Olympic Boulevard, you would have missed Koreatown because basically it was about five, six businesses at that point. Wow, you know, that's actually hard to imagine, Koreatown not being here in L.A. I mean, it's one of the biggest neighborhoods in the city today. You see signs in Korean practically from downtown all the way to Hollywood. Right. But back then, there was no Koreatown. So Cho and his family moved to Mar Vista, a small neighborhood on the west side of Los Angeles. He graduated high school, but dropped out of college partway through to help take care of his family. His younger sister had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. So Cho decided to put his, quote, family member first over his education. 
I still believe, Cho says, that I did the right thing. Okay, so he dropped out of college, and then what? What's his early adulthood like in L.A.? Cho describes this time of his life as a boring life story. He says he was a life insurance agent. I checked. And he was licensed from 1990 to 2002. And occasionally, he worked at his brother's dental office. He lived with his parents, didn't smoke, didn't date. He liked to go bowling, work out at the gym, and watch Dodgers and Lakers games. A super standard Angelino, for the most part. Cho says, quote, I did not have a big dream, but wanted to be a successful family man. That's interesting. He's putting family over what you might call typical American career ambition. Yeah, and that's pretty typical for Korean men of his generation. Here's what Cho says, quote, When I was growing up, my father was always busy and he did not spend time with us. So what I meant by successful family man was become a father who spends more time with his kids, help them with schoolwork, play together, do more house chores to help my wife, being a friend to my kids and to my wife. Cho says that he met his wife, Pona, at his friend's wedding reception. He describes her as, quote, a quiet, beautiful, respectful, and very understanding person. My mother liked her very much, and she was very happy that I picked the right person. And what did she think of him? He's very gentle. This is Bona Cho. Unlike her husband, she did agree to an interview with me. Koreans tend to admire people who speak good English. He lived in the U.S. for a long time. He moved here when he was in high school, so he spoke good English. I could trust him because his parents and family were here too. It would be different if all his family was in Korea and he was the only one here. Family is important in a marriage. His parents and siblings being here, let me trust him. They met, went on some dates, and pretty soon after, they got married. In 1993, they had their first son. And five years later, in 1998, they had a second. He was so good to the kids. He volunteered a lot at their elementary school, too. I couldn't speak English very well, and he had the time. But he volunteered so much that he got a volunteer award from the school. It was always Robin who did everything. He was so good to the children. But besides having his second kid, 1998 stands out as a big year in Robin Cho's life for another reason as well. According to court documents, in 1998, Robin Cho had a big idea. He started using his connections around Koreatown, and he started telling people about a new investment opportunity that could bring everyone a ton of money. 1998 is the year Robin Cho started his multi-million dollar scam. That's coming up right after the break.
Okay, Sharon, you've painted us a really good portrait of Robin Cho. Robin Cho, an immigrant. Robin Cho, a husband. Robin Cho, a family man. But now you're telling me there's a different picture. So tell me about this different Robin Cho. What else has this guy done? How could this guy be a suspect in this triple murder? So it starts with a man named Tony Saw. He and Cho met in college, and by the spring of 1998, they had been friends for over 20 years. Around this time, Cho suggested to Saw that if he loaned him $25,000, Cho would take that money, add $25,000 of his own, plus another $25,000 from his brother, and use that $75,000 to make investments and, quote, make lots of money for everyone. According to court documents, Saw trusted and respected Cho, so he gave him the $25,000. In return, Cho promised him a 4% monthly return on his investment. A 4% monthly return. So on $25,000, that's $1,000 a month, which is good money, but it's not like too good to be true money, right? It's, it's plausible. Yeah, it is. But there were some red flags. According to Saul, Cho had told him that he never had a license to be a broker agent or commodities trader. And even though Cho claimed he knew about investing, he told Saul that having a license would, quote, make things more complicated. He wanted to keep things simple. Okay, yeah, I'd call that a red flag. Yeah, but apparently Sa did receive that 4% return for several months. And he started telling his family and friends about his good fortune. The pitch was basically the same to everyone. A 4% return every month on however much you invest. But the story evolved over time. In 1999, Cho told a potential investor that he had struck a deal with the U.S. government. Over 10 visits in August and September, Cho said that not only would this person get his 4% monthly return, but at the end of the contract, he'd get all his initial investment back. No risk. U.S. government guaranteed. All this sounds fairly far-fetched. Did that guy invest? Yeah. $50,000. And then five months later, he gave Cho another $70,000. Sharon, why do you think people trusted Cho with their money? Well, I think part of it could be cultural. There's this thing called Chong that exists in Korean culture. The closest translation I can think of is instant kinship. It's a sense of connection and affection you have for people you're not necessarily close with. It kind of creates a group mentality where you come to easily trust people you think you're in the same social circle with. Professor Park told me that Tong is especially strong within the Korean immigrant community. Maybe these people would not be called friends if you were still in Korea and you had like an organic group of friends that you went to school with and you grew up together. But in an immigrant community, your network of close friends just become people without all of that kind of shared past. It allowed certain people to then take advantage of a community and then other people who could reinvent themselves whole cloth without people having the ability to check their backstory. And so uh, it is no wonder then that uh, immigrant communities are 
vulnerable to fellow immigrants who prey on this vulnerability. That's not to say the Korean immigrant community or any immigrant community has more fraud than anywhere else. But when it happens, sometimes it's these networks of trust that are being exploited. So how big did Choscam get? Within a couple of years, about 12 people have been strung along to the tune of a little over $2 million. The investments start showing some cracks in 2000. According to court documents, one investor went to Cho and said that they were no longer receiving their promised monthly return of $7,200. Instead, they were only getting $5,000 a month. Cho, quote, made excuses and promised it would be made up later. Apparently, that investor was satisfied and he continued to invest. But by late 2001, he wasn't receiving any money. When he confronted Cho, I'm just going to read this to you, Ben. Quote, Cho informed him that the section of the federal government that dealt with the investments had offices in the World Trade Center. Those offices were destroyed during the September 11, 2001 terrorist attack. Cho advised that the government office in Chicago was attempting to secure backup computer records of those destroyed in the attack. Cho assured him that the investment was safe. Then, Cho asked him to not only invest more money, but help bring him more investors. He said that if they could raise a million dollars, they could get even larger monthly returns. Apparently, that investor felt okay by this, so he recommended it to his father, who in turn invested a total of $320,000. But that just bought Cho time. In July 2002, Cho's checks to the investors started bouncing, and people started talking. They soon realized that no one was getting any money from Cho. Sharon, I gotta ask, at this point, had anyone gone to law enforcement? Yes. In October 2002, one of the investors went to the LAPD, but nothing seemed to happen. Then in November, all of the investors scheduled a meeting with Cho, and he was a no-show. In 2003, two of the fraud victims filed separate civil lawsuits against Robin Cho, each trying to recoup the tens of thousands of dollars they said they had given him. Then on September 26, 2003, Cho met with an investor in a Koreatown parking lot. Cho took out two checks one for 60000 another for 170000 and threw them at the feet of this investor, telling him, quote, the money's in the bank. The investor took those checks, but when he deposited them, the bank told him the checks were drawn from an account that had been closed for months. Cho declared bankruptcy towards the end of that year, so both of the civil suits were dropped. Wait, so after all that... He just got away with it? Not quite. One of the civil suits got the attention of law enforcement. And it took some time, but Cho would soon be in court, facing over 100 counts of securities fraud. That's after the break.
Sharon, I got to say, some of these stories are just crazy. Throwing checks at somebody's feet in a parking lot, claiming your investment office was blown up in 9-11. Were you able to reach any of these fraud victims and ask them about any of this stuff? So I must have sent hundreds of texts, emails, phone calls. And after all that, I was only able to reach two of the fraud victims. And neither of them wanted to talk to me at all let alone sit down for an interview. Hmm. Were you able to talk about anything with them? Did they say anything at all? So one of them basically started yelling and told me to just stop meddling in things that didn't concern me. And then he just hung up. The other one, I actually spoke to her husband, and he told me that Cho's fraud scheme, it basically ruined their life. They had just gotten married when Cho defrauded his wife. He told me about how young they were and how financially difficult it was for them when they were just starting out their life together. He kept repeating that Cho took money away from them and that money is life. Then, as you can imagine, they were scared when they heard about him becoming a murder suspect. It took a long time for them to get over the incident, mentally and financially, and he told me neither of them want to go down that rabbit hole again by talking about it. It's been 20 years, but obviously there's still a lot of pain. And unsurprisingly, that's a pretty common response from victims of fraud. It's a huge toll to be a victim of a major fraud. This is George J. Pockert. He spent 25 years as a civil litigator and bankruptcy attorney in Southern California. And 15 of those years, he was working in Koreatown. Shortens lifespans, drives people to suicide, and whatnot. I mean, it's devastating. Just totally devastating if you lose 50,000 is your life savings for retirement and you've lost it all. You know, you have to survive on Social Security or the grace of your relatives. That's a very tough economic situation. And then there's the emotional toll of being uh, cheated and swindled and the embarrassment and shame of, of falling victim you know, trusting someone that you shouldn't have trusted. In June 2006, Cho was arrested and charged as a result of his Ponzi scheme. And in that criminal case, Cho faced 118 counts for a variety of fraud-related crimes, sale of securities without qualification, using false statements in the sale of a security, and grand theft exceeding $400. And the largest count in this case was $490,500 from one victim. Yeah, so a little bit more than $400. Um, So Cho declared bankruptcy and that protected him from the civil fraud cases, but bankruptcy doesn't protect you from criminal cases, right? Like, did the criminal case still move forward? Let me read you this transcript I got. This is from LA Superior Court, dated Monday, June 9th, 2008. At 9.27 a.m., Robin Cho appeared in court for his criminal fraud case. The presiding judge that morning, Lance Ito, who, perhaps more famously, was also the presiding judge in the O.J. Simpson case. But anyways, the proceedings begin. And almost immediately, the prosecutor tells Judge Ito that in exchange for a guilty plea from Cho, she'll be offering him a deal. Cho would plead guilty to two counts, one for the sale of unqualified securities 
and one for grand theft in excess of $400. Normally, she says, the maximum possible sentence for these two counts would be five years and eight months in state prison. However, the prosecutor moves on to restitution. As part of his deal, Cho would be responsible for paying a total of $265,000 to four victims. Judge Ito then asked the prosecutor the big question. Are we contemplating any custody time? To which she replies, no, your honor. Instead of serving any prison time, Cho would be placed on formal probation for five years. After the prosecution outlines the terms of the deal, Judge Ito walks Cho through all of the rights he's waiving by pleading guilty. And every time, Cho responds, yes, your honor. Judge Ito tells him, you're going to have to make restitution to the victims in this matter as ordered. And if I find that there's a willful failure, in other words, if you have the ability, but you fail to make restitution, then that can be a basis for finding a violation of probation. A violation of probation would send Cho to prison. Cho says he understands. Then Judge Ito asks one last question. Mr. Cho, do you understand and accept the terms and conditions of your grant of probation? Yes, Your Honor. And that's it. For a scheme that at one point was estimated to involve around $2.5 million, Cho was sentenced to five years probation, eight days in jail. Well, really 25, but he'd already served 17 in custody, so eight days in jail. And restitution of $265,000 to four victims. Sharon, really? This is crazy. I'm not an attorney, but that deal feels really light to me. Cho took a lot of money from these people for years, and that's it? I know. And you're not the only one who was surprised by that plea deal. George Pockert didn't understand it either. It's a very good deal for Mr. Cho because that's almost a slap on the wrist for that level of fraud. I know if maybe this was his, his first-time offender, but even a first-time offender should be looking at least five years. I mean, if it had been three, four, five victims, and the total was in low five figures or something, you know, that would, might make more sense. But, you know, we'd say 15 victims, would say 2.5 million, something like that. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. I, I think that was about as lenient as it could get. Yeah, I still don't get it, Sharon. Why was his punishment so light? Honestly, Ben... I don't really know. Because Cho took this deal, his case never went to trial. I've dug through all the court documents and couldn't find anything that fully explains it. But for as good as this plea deal seemed, it would actually become a major turning point in Robin Cho's life. In pleading guilty, Cho ran into the policy in the state of California that convicted felons must surrender a sample of their DNA. So, Cho pleads guilty in this criminal fraud case in June 2008. He surrenders his DNA. And five months later, in November, a message is sent to the LAPD. Remember that unknown DNA sample found on the latex glove fragments at the crime scene? 
glove fragments stuck to the tape used to bind the hands of the victim, Tree Song. Cho's DNA is a match. And that's when the LAPD gets back to work. The cold case is about to get very hot. You're not leaving here today. You understand that? You're not leaving here today. You're here now to discuss this case and tell us what happened that night. That's why you're here. I'm Take a kids, breath. Take a deep breath. Take a that, deep listen, that night, Mr. Cho. Yeah. Take a deep breath and think back. Remember what happened during the day and tell us your side of the story what happened. How it happened, why it happened. That's on the next episode of Strangeland, produced by Western Sound. And it starts right now.